with the climate law that we have worked with and uh, we have an agreement and we'll vote this uh, in this the end of this month. Uh, we show the world that we are serious, that we are taking the leadership, that we have a pathway towards climate neutrality, and also that we increase our own uh, um, um, reductions in front of 2030. And we are uh, doing this in front of uh, Glasgow and thereby also encouraging others to, to take action. Then I must say that uh, the Biden administration has not only delivered in the election movement and show that climate is a big priority on their agenda, but also um, during uh, the first month uh, actually uh, also been taking action, not at least with the summit in April uh, where um, uh, Biden uh, gathered uh, world leaders and uh, took uh, uh, several important steps in front of Glasgow. I'm not uh, being this naive optimist, uh, but I really believe we have an opportunity. So I hope this discussion today will be about how we use this opportunity in the best way to make sure that Glasgow becomes the success we would like to see. Thank you, Jitta Gutland. So let me turn now to one of the experts following these discussions, has been following these discussions for many years now, Jana Lesiak from the Slovenian delegation to the UNFCCC. Thank you. Thank you, Frederick. Um, I'm happy to be here, looking forward for our exchange. Um, as I see it, we are faced with three main questions uh, for today's debate. So I will try to sketch the answers. Uh, so will the COP in Glasgow be different? Um, yes and no. Uh, not, yes, for sure, uh, as current negotiations are conducted uh, in a different virtual format. Uh, we must understand that negotiations are already happening as we speak. Uh, subsidiary bodies of the convention are gathered every day for technical virtual negotiations, which are extremely uh, tiresome and difficult and require extreme patience and focus under COVID circumstances. So uh, uh, copying Glasgow in, um, uh, is, is going to probably reflect that as well. Uh, on the other hand, uh, no COP is not going to be different as we have uh, main open questions still uh, open, uh, namely Article 6, transparency, common timeframes, adaptation, finance. So um, lots to be done. I would say. Um, second question, are climate goals feasible? Uh, then uh, again, yes and no. It depends on international and domestic commitments. Uh, within negotiation process, it depends on two major factors. Um, I would say in general, the level of trust between parties of the convention and the level of domestic red lines to be followed um, within climate negotiations. Uh, third question may be the most important one, uh, how the global community will have to work together. Well, the emphasis, of course, is on working together. Uh, we have to be aware at all times that uh, UNFCCC uh, process is based on consensus, meaning that um, every single party out of uh, 197 uh, needs to be involved. Um, but consensus that does not mean that 
everybody needs to agree on the issue. It means that common understanding of the negotiation substance needs to be acknowledged and uh, accepted. Um, additionally, as we all know, the process has a very, very strong technical content, uh, sometimes extremely difficult to understand, but it's also very political in nature. Uh, then we have cultural differences uh, among parties. Um, uh, so uh, I would say that politics really needs, uh, needs to work very close with uh, the expert level to deliver the outcome. And um, it is my opinion that um, in this process, facilitation probably matters the most. Uh, in a sense, it's, it builds trust among parties when it is eroded, and sometimes it is eroded. Uh, makes a process and, as transparent as possible. Good facilitator will do that. Um, and um, good facilitator will um, be very in inclusive, meaning listening to every single group. And um, as you know, there is a lot a lots of groups uh, discussing um, climate issues at the moment. That would be from my part. Thank you very much for sharing those insights. Uh, you'll have other opportunities later on, of course, uh, to share a few more of your thoughts about how these negotiations uh, are going. <clears throat> Let me turn now to Nisha Shafi from the Arab Youth Climate Movement. Uh, thank you, Frederick, uh, and uh, wonderful uh, to be here and to share uh, my comments here. So probably given the fact uh, this year, um, the whole COP26 uh, uh, looks like whether it's going to be online or offline, so most important thing is if it is an online or offline, making sure that uh, everybody's voices are heard. I mean, there have been always um, issues of, uh, you know, who will be attended, will be vaccinated or not, but making sure that countries who are more vulnerable countries would be able to make it to the COP. So that is the most critical aspect because they, their, their voices have to be heard and making sure no one is left behind. So through re-engaging with observers and non-observers is the most critical prospect. And given the hope, uh, what gives me hope is that the given the current engagement with the private sector, it's a sort of an optimism, like the initiative like Race to Zero has been a good campaign, but um, we have to stick and to see how much these commitments are going to be materialized. At the same time, we also look at, uh, um, at my point of view, is how the promises made by the developed countries. We know the G7 summits are coming up. Uh, the outcome would be also very crucial at this point of time that what are their pledges by developed countries. Uh, some of the countries like Brazil and India are yet to make uh, commitments. And um, some of the major oil producers like here in the Saudi Arabia also has to come up with uh, major uh, ideas, but they are recently made some great um, announcements in terms of uh, tree planting, and they have come up with you know uh, more hydrogen fuel technologies, has been discussed very broadly in the Middle East and North Africa. So they're giving an optimism of how uh, sort of thoughts about transition, energy transition has been discussed, but it is up to how uh, we have to live through to see how this is going to be materialized and how not only countries lower their emissions, but also raise their current climate ambition. And this can be not only doing by reducing the emissions, but also at the time uh, increasing their adaptation in terms of uh, uh, ambitions in adaptation, building resilience. This point has to be key in the upcoming summit. And most critical of, of course, is the climate finance, how the countries are going to uh, build up the $100 uh, billion dollar, uh, mobilization climate fund, which is crucial for most of the uh, SIDs countries, which they have been always asking 
in terms of climate justice. This is something that they require in order to rebuild their countries. Given the pandemic situation, things have been gone beyond what it is expected. But we hope this COP, like any COP, please uh, that we always goes with optimism and come back uh, a bit um, uh, in a negative mode. So I believe uh, going forward, COP26 shows the ambition, uh, given how the um, uh, how the COP uh, delegate from the UK has been campaigning and visiting each country. Uh, we also had the fortunate enough to meet him here in Doha. And we hope that this sort of engagement before the COP, uh, during this SBA going on right now, give much more push to what we need at the COP later this year in November. So I'm optimistic, but also very cautious too. Thanks, Nisha Chafi. Uh, let me turn now to Amber Rudd from Equinor. Uh, thank you so much. Um, Nisha, just to reflect on what you said about COP, people arriving with optimism and leading, leaving a bit deflated. It didn't feel like that in Paris um, just over five years ago. We arrived with huge amounts of trepidation, really, because we had the shadow of Copenhagen, which had failed, hanging over us. And although people reflect on Paris as a success, which it was, it was very nerve-wracking at the time. One of the reasons I think it succeeded was because um, the stars were aligned, really. There was a need for an international conference. There was sufficient pressure coming from different sides. The Americans under Obama, of course, were leading with influence and, let's face it, money. And one of the things I discovered was in the final moments of Paris, nobody quite knew who was in charge of declaring it a success. It felt like we were going to get a deal. And of course, we did get a deal with 197 countries, which was the first of its size and rather remarkable. But there was also a sort of slightly nervous moment when everybody waited for the marking to begin. So the green groups, the cities, the businesses. And in fact, it was declared a success and for good reason. So when we look at the title of this talk, this time will it be different? I hope not too different, because I hope it will also actually lead to a great coalescing of energy and effort going forward. Just three short points about um, the differences that we're in now. I think that we've come so far from Paris in terms of the materials that are available, the technology that can be put to use, its cost, public feeling, motivation. It's been a huge advance and progress since 2015, more than people had expected. If you'd said to me just five years ago that the UK, for instance, would ban the internal combustion engine by 2035, we wouldn't have believed it. And that reflects a lot of motion in the, particularly in the Western world, towards needing to take action with government policy as well. So I think we can welcome that. Um, the second issue I would bring um, to people's attention is the strain between the developed and the underdeveloped or less developed nations, which is really what Nisha was also talking about in terms of the money and the level of trust. And I think that this has been exacerbated and made even more relevant to people's thinking by the pandemic. Uh, this morning you wake up and the news is about who is going to share how much of the vaccine. If we're going to have a physical COP, who will be vaccinated? How many tens of millions of vaccines which the Americans are giving, are going to reach different countries. What is COVAX doing? COVAX is saying, you know, people complain to us that we're not giving out enough of it. You have to give us the vaccines first. So that, that difficulty between uh, non-industrialised countries who 
need to industrialize and should industrialize, but need to do so in a way that does not produce the high levels of carbon emissions that were produced in the West, and the fact they can only do that with plenty of money, is exacerbated and made even more strained that relationship with the rest of us who are industrialized, because A, we haven't put up all the money we said we would, and beware of the vaccines to help look after their countries. So that area is um, even more strained than it was in Paris, and that gives me cause for concern. But my final point really is one of enthusiasm and optimism to point out that, as Jita said in some of her opening remarks, now we have the Americans behind us. And one of the good things about COP Glasgow being delayed is that we don't have Donald Trump over our shoulders. Instead, we have the very supportive President Biden. Indeed, uh, not having Donald Trump could make a huge difference uh, there indeed. Uh, Anthony Frogat, do you share that sense of cautious optimism ahead of Glasgow? Um, yes, I guess so. I mean, there has been considerable uh, changes in the last year, um, as has been alluded to by the other panel members. Um, US is obviously uh, crucial, um, the rejoining of Paris, the, the convening of the Leaders' Summit led to more pledges from other countries, Japan, et cetera, more countries going to net zero. So what we've overall seen is an increase in the pledges that are due uh, at Glasgow. And it's worth just emphasizing the importance of Glasgow. Glasgow is supposed to be on an equal basis to Copenhagen, to Paris, in terms of coming together with countries and reassessing the nationally determined contributions. And an analysis by the climate analytics suggests that post the leaders summit, if you combine all the all of the revised pledges, uh, global temperature rises rise is expected to be in the order of 2.4 degrees. Um, so an improvement from the previous uh, uh, accumulation of around 2.9 degrees, but still off the target. So it, progress has been made but yet it's really is insufficient and, and that is stark and we need to make improvements. I'd emphasize uh, what uh, has already been said in terms of the technology improvements. And I think this really is the standout difference between now and in Paris. Um, it was mentioned in terms of the banning of the internal combustion engine, uh, that the falling price of solar, of wind, et cetera. There has been a fundamental shift in the belief in technologies across the whole gamut of the energy sector um, a remarkable statement by the International Atomic Energy Agency in their World Energy Outlook of last year. I mean, we must remember this is an organization established in the 70s uh, in, in some ways uh, to support the fossil fuel industry. It's, it's not oil and gas at, at heart, but their, their statement that basically solar now under the right conditions is the cheapest electricity ever. I mean, this is, yeah, we, we, we need to grasp this and see, actually, we can roll out these technologies and it is cheaper than, than the current business as usual or, or the current in, incumbents uh, in terms of what they're delivering. So this is a fundamental change and I think something we really have to capitalise on. Two final points. One is, as was mentioned in terms of finance, this is a deal breaker and we haven't been making progress. We know that the commitments are below the 100 billion that is not only symbolic, but is absolutely fundamental. And in some ways is more important now because of the pandemic. There is a need to build back better. Most of the, the, the green stimulus packages are in the OECD countries. Developed countries aren't able to, to do this. So the, the green stimulus 
uh, sort of the, the green finance is more important. So we have to show that this can be delivered. Uh, and I think that's without that, we won't have a successful outcome at COP. Uh, and then finally, it's just really worth reminding ourselves that although progress has been made, we are still in some ways running behind the science. Since Paris, emissions have continued to increase. Uh, we'll, we'll probably see there is a dip in 2020 because of the pandemic, but on average, we're still seeing over 40 gigatons of CO CO2 equivalent each year being emitted. We are seeing the consequences of that in terms of heat waves, in terms of yeah, more extreme weather events. So. Yeah, I hope that that is also the driver. And in some ways, that also could be what different. what is different, is people see the consequences of climate change. It is here and now, and we know unless we change, it's only going to get worse. So I, I, I think in that regard, things are different. The, the climate is in a worse situation than it was five years ago. So thank you very much. Thanks, Anthony, for that. And so let me turn now to Jennifer Tolman to close the initial round of opening remarks. Thank you very much and thank you for starting this debate. Um, a lot has already been said and I think what's clear is a lot is different now. Um, now, very broadly, I completely agree the geopolitics have fundamentally changed, not just with the US reentry, but also with China putting climate a lot more at the center of its geopolitical protections. In general, as seeing a, a race to climate neutrality that is not necessarily backed up by those 2030 pledges yet, but there is suddenly a, a momentum and a politics around climate that is positive and is driving or has the potential to drive a race to the top dynamic. Now, the other thing that I would also really want to highlight is the shift in financial systems and markets. Now, around Paris, we really didn't have this recognition of how significant climate risk was for financial risk and for economic and macroeconomic risk. And I think that's really been evolving not just through the actions by investors, but also actually through the pandemic and just a reevaluation of resilience. Now, the pandemic context in and of itself also shifts things. We are both seeing OECD countries in particular being able to embrace the opportunity of, of recovery and in some cases green recovery, though we know that the recoveries aren't as green as they would need to be to actually get us anywhere near a climate safe trajectory around 1.5 degrees. Um, and the other piece where I do fully agree with Anthony that is different is we're now in the critical decade. We're no longer talking about in a decade's time. We're we are in the decade that will decide whether we are climate safe or not. It really is the next nine years that make the difference. And that's why the lack of 2030 targets is quite concerning. To do a quick, good, bad, ugly, I think the things that are really good heading into Paris is we are actually higher in terms of ambitions of where we probably could have expected to have been if, if the COP hadn't have been delayed just because countries have had time to go back and really review where they can do more. We have seen particularly G7 countries step up um, and a big part of that is also due to the fact that the US is back and that is built on the good momentum from the UK and the EU. Um, and more broadly, again, we're seeing finance moving and that's starting to affect government spending as well around things like coal finance. We've seen big announcements uh, about phasing out coal finance from the G7, from South Korea. That means that China is really effectively the only big international coal fund standing. Um, and we're really hoping to see movement there ahead of COP26 as well. Um, but 
there is also a decent amount of bad or at least dubious. Now, a big part of the bad and dubious is the lack of climate neutrality commitments being followed up by 2030 targets, particularly in G20 countries that, that aren't G7 countries, so in, in middle income countries. Now, part of this is also down to the pandemic. Part of it is down to the fact that they quite simply don't have fiscal space to make greater commitments. But part of it is also just about not following through on what a climate neutrality pathway means for your 2030 targets. And that's really worrying because it really is this next decade that counts. Um, then there's the ugly. And for me, the ugly has already been addressed in this room and it is very much the solidarity gap. And I would broaden that out. I do think it is climate finance. I do think it is a desperate adaptation finance gap, which is only going to become more pressing and, and bigger. The need for adaptation finance is only going to become bigger, bigger as we head into this decade. But it's also broader solidarity pieces now, and this is where the pandemic comes into play. It's solidarity around vaccines. It's solidarity around debt relief and economic restructuring so that you can even decide where you want to make investments as a middle income country, let alone a vulnerable country. Um, and it's about supporting those countries then in particular green investments. And that's not something that the 100 billion can do. That is a drop in the ocean when it comes to the significant sums that would need to be invested for a truly green recovery globally. Um, but some things don't change. And the things that don't change are one, uh, the sense of urgency that we bring into this COP. Um, and I think that is also shared by a lot of leaders, which is positive. But also the fact that COP26 at the end of the day is an adjudication moment. And if played properly, can be an acceleration moment, a moment to really acknowledge the gap and say, we need to do more and not just after 2030, but in the next five years. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Jennifer Tolman. Uh, we can now open the Q&A session. And I will stay uh, with you, Jennifer, uh, for the first one, uh, which is uh, probably the most uh, uh, obvious in a way. Uh, so uh, there is a, a general sense of cautious uh, optimism uh, now, it seems, uh, ahead of Glasgow. What do you think should be the high-level political objectives of COP26? Um, and I could also add the, uh, the realistic political objectives of that conference. Jennifer. The political outcome is that you can shape the politics of what is realistic, um, because right now we're in a period where particularly G7 countries are kind of taking on more debt than they ever have, are completely restructuring their approach to, to their economies. And really what we need to see them do is restructure their approach to the multilateral system as well. Now, to demystify that a bit, what I'm saying is COP can't just be a technical moment where we finalize the rule book. That is absolutely necessary as well. But we also need political agreement that what parties are committing to is keeping climate safe levels in reach. And that means doing more um, in 2022, in 2023, in 2024, and bringing some of those concrete coalitions together that give confidence that that will happen through things like committing to phase out international fossil finance and putting a date on that, committing to end um, internal combustion engines or have pathways for zero emissions vehicles, um, for things like the fact that we're not only going to review what we're doing after 2030 when we meet in the global stock take in 2023, this, this big review of how we're doing globally, this big kind of literally temperature check on, on where we are. Um, but we're actually going to say we need to do more in the second half of this decade and commit to doing that. All right, thanks, Jennifer. Let me turn now to uh, Jita Goodland. What do you think are or should be uh, the high level political objectives of COP26? 
there are a couple of things that I think uh, needs to be done. But first, I would like to just uh, uh, say that I believe that Jennifer is absolutely right. It is so important that it's not just a rule book, a technical conference. It needs to be a political outcome. And we need to feel that we are uh, moving together uh, forward to implement the, the Paris Agreement to reach the objective of coming well under two degrees, approaching 1.5. And I know that seemed today very uh, like an utopia, uh, but we really need to focus on, on doing much more. And then, of course, we need agreement to do more to 2030, to have higher expectations of the NDCs. Uh, we need uh, more focus on uh, helping out with climate financing and um, the European Union needs to be a very active part here, but also include uh, the United States in that discussion. Uh, I believe we need uh, to have um, an agreement that we want to phase out uh, and have a ban on uh, the coal plants. And there we need to have a focus on China, of course. And then I would say that I would like, but this is a, a bit of a wish list, of course, uh, and I know that the United States are, uh, don't have the same systems, uh, but we, we need to have an agreement on more sectorial legislation on how to make them fit better together. I'm very proud of the ETS. I believe uh, it is delivering more after the latest reform and now it's coming up again, but we need to have a uh, level playing field uh, when it comes to the industry and I hope that we can have fruitful discussions with China, uh, of course with all who has ETS systems but also um, make the United States do more at least. They don't want the same system but they need to kind of adapt to the outcome that we have in the ETS. And now to uh, Anthony Frogatz. Um, what do you think should be the, the high-level politi political objectives of COP26? Yeah, I mean, I think it's absolutely clear that we need to have confidence that uh, we are moving much closer to the 1.5 degree target. Uh, that is important in terms of uh, communication uh, and the sort of overarching narrative. I mean, I think that the we need to feel that we're making progress uh, and we haven't done that since Paris. So there needs to be a, a understandable outcome that says countries are committed to taking action on climate change. That is important for citizens. And we have seen over the last three or four years, a, a rising up in of public concern over climate change as uh, before in my introduction, I was highlighting the extent to which climate change is having impacts. People want to see action being taken. It's really important in terms of businesses. Um, uh, we are seeing more and more uh, companies committing to reducing emissions, committing to net zero, committing to, to shorter term targets, um, which is absolutely fundamental. Uh, we were doing a panel last week uh, at Chatham House uh, with many of the Nordic countries, and, and it was really refreshing in terms of the, the, the companies there present saying, we are going much further and faster than many of the countries. And, and, and in some ways, we're waiting for them to catch up. And, and I think we need that across the world to, to, to see that a, a clear 
direction of travel that can enable companies and individuals to move much further and faster uh, than the countries themselves. So I, I think it's about the overarching narrative. And, and I think finally, uh, as was mentioned, it, it's some of these sectorial targets that, that sit below the overall agreement, but non nonetheless are a fundamental part of it. It's been mentioned EVs, it's been mentioned coal. Uh, again, the IEA with their 1.5 degree report was saying, actually, we shouldn't be uh, investing in, in new exploration for oil and gas. So let's try and sec create a sector agreement in that direction that gives uh, the sector a clear steer as, as to where it should be going to, so that we can avoid uh, sort of sunk costs uh, and stranded assets in the future. Thanks, Anthony. Let me turn to Jana Lesiak now, uh, maybe with a, a reflection about how um, the technical and the political are interacting between each other, because uh, Jana, you've been involved mostly in the technical uh, negotiations for so many years. Uh, they've been sort of stuck since uh, Paris. We still don't have uh, a proper rule book uh, for after Paris. So do you expect COP26 will provide this political impetus that is needed also to unlock the technical aspect of the discussion? Um, yes, uh, Frederick, I believe that um, we have a great potential to do that. Um, and the technical and the political levels are so intervened, inter interwined uh, all the time that it's uh, really quite uh, difficult to, um, uh, to, uh, to see them uh, apart. Um, uh, the, nego uh, the negotiation table, we uh, must not forget, they are always, uh, they are not just countries, they are all, always uh, people. Um, and uh, that part of um, technical negotiation is also some, uh, um, something to, to underline. Um, uh, the negotiator, negotiate, uh, negotiators um, have, of course, they have red lines, they have uh, uh, countries' positions, but uh, at the same time, they have their own uh, opinions and they can uh, be political strategists um, uh, at the same time. Um, but for, uh, for me, the main um, uh, achievement of um, COP26 uh, uh, in Glasgow will definitely, definitely be the um, reinvention in a sense of multilateralism as such. Um, uh, we have seen in Paris um, how in, in the completely different period uh, of geopolitics, how, um, how important it is uh, for multilateralism to be alive um, at the negotiation table. Um, so it's not just about um, all countries must commit to uh, net zero emissions, but mid-century and uh, undertake uh, significant, significant cuts, but also about the, um, the cooperation which is established and it's going to be prolonged uh, in the future after, after uh, Glasgow. Thank you, Jana. Uh, let me turn to Nisha Chafi now. Um, uh, we've seen in Europe how the, uh, the youth climate movement has been instrumental in the past few years in some key elections like the, the last Euro um, European elections, for example, where uh, we saw some, some kind of green wave uh, going through uh, uh, on the back of those climate marches that were organised uh, by, uh, by the youth climate movement. 
So uh, what are your own expectations for COP26 and what um, do you believe should be the high-level uh, political objective of that meeting? Well, uh, it is true that uh, the youth climate movement has gained more tractions. And of course, it should be that way, given the fact that the future we are thinking about is all about us and our future. So keeping in mind that the, the latest commitments by the co governments recently has been not, not what it has to be to reach what 1.5 degrees Celsius. So the campaign has been always uh, in, the, in line, making sure that the, every country's commitments and their ambitious NDCs do meet this. At this point of time, we are nowhere close to it. And that's one of the key uh, uh, asks by the youth community leaders to making sure that commitments are there and then um, uh, agreed before we end up at COP uh, having that negotiations there. So another thing is to making sure that climate justice is served around every country and making sure that all the countries have their voices heard at the same time. Uh, finally, the climate finance uh, is the do or the break thing at this point of time. Uh, and uh, given the pandemic, this has become absolute necessity now. So that is also something we uh, are asking as a youth climate movement around the globe, that we need to push our governments to making sure they, um, they are in line with their commitments. And also at the same time, enhancing international cooperation in, the, in terms of energy transition, uh, clean energy uh, should be a key priorities for the countries and also pushing the G7 and G20 at this point of time to make sure that they, they have the, the, the best or greatest ambition at this point of time. Thank you, uh, Nishad. And uh, let me turn now to uh, Amber Rudd. Um, uh, you're an experienced politician. You've been in those uh, kinds of meetings before and uh, you shared just, just, just now your sense of cautious optimism for this, uh, for this conference. So uh, what do you think should be the high-level political objectives of it? And um, uh, do you uh, sort of inject a sense of realism uh, into that uh, as well when it comes to your own uh, expectations uh, in, in terms of the outcomes? As we've heard from all the other speakers, this is incredibly complicated. We mustn't pretend that there is one solution. We, we all spoke earlier for two or three minutes and got crammed in all our asks of this conference to do with money, to do with justice, to do with technology, on and on it goes. But if you ask me to choose what I would like from the politicians who are coming, apart from the whole multilateral agreement of some sort, is policy decisions that will allow businesses to develop the solutions. When we look at what's happened over the past six years, and we've all spoken about the fact that there have been some amazing breakthroughs during the past six years, it's businesses, inventors, innovators, universities that have provided the solutions, but only if governments provide the policies which give the structure, the certainty, the security for businesses to develop that. If they know that internal combustion engines are going by 2035, if they know that there will be offshore wind auctions every two to three years, and that price will come down, but they will be fair, transparent, the markets will deliver, then businesses will deliver. When in 2016, I had to negotiate with the Chancellor, George Osborne, about offshore wind auctions, and his view was that they were a costly, unnecessary part of our spending. We negotiated a very tight, at the time it felt, um, uh, maximum price per megawatt hour for the offshore wind, which Equinoise, as you know, 
a market leader. And that price was 105, which now seems absolutely ridiculously high compared to the levels at which it came down to. So we need the countries to form the policies and we need the EU to do that as well so that businesses can deliver. Uh, and the benefit of that will be cheaper solar, which we've already seen. Thank you to Germany for that. Uh, cheaper offshore wind, which we've seen. But the UK has driven a lot of that. Yesterday, there was a, a letter in the FT from some of the largest and most significant shipbuilders in the world. And as we know, container ships play a huge role in moving product around in this globalized world. And they were asking for policy so that they can start planning for green fuels or biofuels or whatever the solution will be for ships. We need politicians to agree policies so that the markets can deliver a greener future. Thank you. Uh, let me stay with you for a minute, uh, Amber Rudd, about um, uh, all the preparatory meetings which are happening between now and Glasgow, um, no, actually sooner than uh, next week, there's going to be a meeting of uh, the G7 there. So what do you think can be expected from the G7 in preparing for potential agreement of any kind in, in Glasgow? Agenda. And uh, Biden has already said that it is his number one priority. I think that one of the issues that will be central to the discussions is the money. We keep coming back to this, but it is absolutely central to getting <clears throat> a truly global agreement and to uh, getting the trust back. And I think it was Jana who talked about the trust. And we have to get that trust back by showing that the money that we've committed is going to be available. It becomes fairly competitive at that stage and it's awkward for the UK because we have uh, agreed to uh, cut our international aid. It's still larger than so many other countries, blah, blah, blah. You know that story, but it's still an awkward place to be when you're leading the COP. But I think that the money will be one of the central things because everybody can agree this needs to be done. It's less easy to agree the journey there. One of the things I would like to see, and I know the EU is more forward thinking than the US on, is um, some sort of further discussion on a border adjustment tax. And I agree with Jita, who spoke about uh, ETS, how important it's been. And the more that we can have that heads us towards putting a price on carbon, the more successful we will be. We'll talk about uh, carbon markets indeed a little bit later on. But let me ask Jennifer Tolman uh, now, uh, what are your expectations from the G7 uh, meeting next week and, and maybe some further meetings uh, happening before the COP26? Do you expect something major in terms of the contribution that this group of countries can make uh, to the COP26? Thank you very much. I do expect something major, mainly because I genuinely believe that if the G7 doesn't deliver, or at least members of the G7 don't deliver, I really struggle to see how we're going to fill those solidarity gaps that I was talking about earlier. And that is very much the money part that uh, that Amber Rudd was also talking about. But it goes beyond money. Um, it goes to things like making a decision about the TRIPS waiver and really figuring out how we're going to accelerate vaccine deployment to developing countries. That's something that needs to be a leaders level decision. Um, it's about how we're going to deal with debt and fiscal space challenges that are actually constraining the ability of developing countries to 
to invest in lower emission pathways and to create markets that that businesses and investors can then move into. Um, and that is not just about public finance, though it's also about public finance, but it's about techie things like um, how are we going to help them with debt and access to capital markets? Are we going to be reallocating the IMF special drawing rights? These are leaders level decisions. And then the step beyond that, that isn't just responding to the immediate crisis, which is really what the G7 is there for. It's there to respond to multilateral crises, to economic crises, is this question of, are we actually able to pull together a compelling positive offer to help countries, particularly middle income countries, accelerate their transition away from coal and into renewable energies and renewable resilient energy systems? Um, and I think that's that's the kind of real show of the G7 as, as a leaders level space, not just in terms of it being heads of state, but in terms of it actually being climate leaders. I think the other moment that I would really mention here as the kind of second bite at the apple and actually quite important for long-term shifts of markets is actually the EU-US summit. Now, this is meant to be happening pretty much immediately after the G7 summit. It's going to be between President Biden and uh, Commission President Ursula von der Leyen and Council President Charles Michel. And it's really the moment to A, make progress on anything that the G7 weren't able decide, to decide because we do have some more conservative countries climate-wise in there, uh, Japan, Canada occasionally. Um, but it's also really a moment to show that two of the world's largest market economies are putting their market forces behind this transition to climate neutrality and doing that by agreeing to, to be in talks about the new rules that will govern that market and being really clear about where that's going so that businesses can invest and so that there's a bit more certainty about what's what, what's happening. I don't think we should underestimate that sort of a signal through something like the creation of a transatlantic green economy council, or at least kind of this, this recognition that the markets need to work together, particularly on regulation. And I think that will have a huge impact on countries like China, like Japan, like South Africa. So that's also really what I'm looking for. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Jita Goodland, uh, your views about the G7's role in driving the agenda forward for COP26, what are your views there? But of course, it's crucial. Of course, uh, that's what's needed. Uh, on the other hand, I absolutely agree that there is also this uh, tremendous need for multilateralism and uh, COP itself can by creating the involvement from everyone at the at the place or remotely depending on what's happening be very very important so but we need drivers and that is the momentum we need to create now and i really believe this time there is there is an opportunity but can i also say two things from um what was mentioned before, uh, I really, uh, I really agree uh, that we need to include the shipping sector into this discussion. So I was ho so happy that that was raised, and uh, I, I also want to highlight that in front of the IMO M M MAPC that is taking place next week and the week after. Uh, I, I think that this sector is so important and will be even more uh, important in the future if it doesn't reduce its emission it will be one of the global emitters the big global emitters in 2050 with an increase of worst case 2050 uh, 250 percent uh, increase and i i really believe 
we need to do more. And I also think the Paris, uh, no, not the Paris, but on the on the Glasgow conference, we need to include shipping into the the talks because they always claim they are not part of the COP discussion. But IMO is not delivering itself, uh, so that needs to be done. And then also uh, not only on the ETS, but the discussion on a more um, um, sectorial approach and uh, the, the willingness to connect one another uh, also in, in the ambition in different sectors, in different parts of, of our society, in, in our countries needs to be done. And there, the momentum, the political momentum is so crucial. It's not only about decisions, it's about the, the talks, the promise that we will do more. It will be this snowball effect if uh, the political leaders at the conference are saying, this is something we will work on together. This is something where we will have different bilateral agreements later on. Uh, that will be very important for also the political outcome. Thank you, Jitta. Uh, so you spoke about the ETS, so that's a good uh, introduction to uh, the discussion about the carbon markets, uh, which will be one of the items uh, on the agenda for COP26. Um, as we've heard, there's been long-standing uh, divisions on uh, what is called the Article 6 of the Paris Agreement, which sets out, uh, sets out the mechanism for regulating international carbon markets. Uh, so what are the key sticking points uh, there remaining and what progress do you believe can be achieved? Um, and maybe we can start uh, with you, uh, Jana Lesiak, because you've been involved in those discussions. Uh, so can you give us maybe just a quick rundown on, 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 on how far we've gone now in uh, discussing and potentially resolving issues around Article 6? Yeah, uh, thank you, Frederick. Um, well, the discussions are, um, as we speak, um, um, uh, as we speak, the, the negotiations are um, um, uh, at the moment, um, uh, at the moment uh, uh, happening. So it is quite difficult um, to say uh, where they will end. Um, but but um, let me just say that the main uh, uh, question is. Um, how to account um, emission reduction and what is being counted, um, basically. Um, so when we um, uh, hear the Article 6 is uh, very much um, connected uh, with the uh, so-called common timeframes, which are timeframes um, on how to report our uh, nationally determined um, contributions. Um, so, uh, when talking about emission trading system, we need to uh, we need to know that um, actually it's uh, I will say yet again it's about trusting uh, parties to um, to uh, uh, to come uh, to terms with the um, the system which will be accountable and which will be transparent and which will be um, which will be essentially. Um, uh, good for 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 uh, for all parties co uh, concerned. That's, Thank you. Uh, Let me turn. Yeah, which uh, uh, from my part. Thanks. 
Thank you, Jana. Uh, Anthony Frogat, uh, maybe a few uh, thoughts from you uh, when it comes to uh, progress and the potential for uh, a breakthrough maybe at COP26 when it comes to carbon markets uh, and this Article 6 discussion, uh, which has been so divisive uh, until now. Do you, expect some, do you expect some sort of breakthrough there because of the political impetus that we've seen uh, over the past months? Uh. Difficult. Yeah, I mean, I, I I don't know the extent to which there will be a breakthrough. I, I think we all realise that this is a, a key element. It is one of the, the outstanding questions in terms of the Paris rulebook. So every effort will be taken to overcome these issues and overcome the differences. Uh, over the last uh, few months, I, I think what we're starting or what we are seeing is a sort of more real world urgency for these issues to be addressed. And I, th I, I know within our conversation, we, we will come to the carbon border tax adjustment mechanism. But I, I, I do think that th what this is doing is potentially driving forward the, the, the political debate onto some of the technical questions. Because if, a, if a, a block like the EU is starting to say, or is, is putting in place, mechanisms to charge other countries or, or, or to create a tax for goods coming into the EU that are of higher carbon production, then this increases the urgency for other countries to account more clearly for their production. And the, the carbon border tax adjustment mechanism will also put in place the mechanisms and the rules around how we assess carbon the carbon content of different goods. So it is, is creating a, a real world imperative to look at these questions about global carbon markets. And up until now, we've had regional markets, we've had linked markets, but we haven't had a, a global market. So I, I do see that the sort of the politics will help drive the need for some of these technical issues to be addressed. Just one final thing, it is important in terms of Article 6, but we are still seeing countries committing to uh, reducing their emissions. We are still seeing technologies being delivered. We are still seeing gaps within the, the finances uh, in terms of adaptation and mitigation. So it's important, but it isn't the be all and end all. Other things can carry on. And I think that's really important to, to take note of. Thank you, Anthony. Uh, Jennifer Tolman, maybe your views about uh, global carbon markets and whether uh, this uh, carbon border adjustment mechanism uh, proposal, which is yet to be made. Uh, do you think this will drive forward uh, the, uh, the conversation um, when it comes to uh, Article 6 discussions uh, at COP26? I think it'll definitely affect conversations uh, around Article 6 at the negotiations, whether that will be a positive or a negative effect. I'm less, I'm less sure. Um, so I think it does certainly increase the urgency to, to resolve issues around Article 6, but it is quite a complex topic, as, as all other panellists have mentioned. And the biggest issue around it is that essentially what you're creating is something that is meant to be obsolete by essentially 2050. Um, and at the same time, you're connecting resources to it. And that is also, to a certain extent, the case for um, the Commission's proposed carbon border adjustment mechanism. So I think we've already seen some concern 
raised by international allies around the EU's approach to carbon border adjustment mechanisms. That concern can be managed by a proper diplomatic strategy, by clarity about how this mechanism will evolve. But right now, I'll be very honest, it seems like more of a diplomatic headache then it will be a mechanism that actually delivers significant change in the world just because of the evolution of financial markets, the evolution of the geopolitics around climate. And in a way, I feel like those will probably drive ambition reductions faster than a market mechanism that has yet to be set up and will then probably still go through some teething issues, uh, particularly given the fact that some of our biggest allies, including the US, quite simply don't have a carbon market that is equivalent. Um, the other piece that is quite controversial around some of the propositions that have been floating around um, is the use of uh, the, the revenues from this, this effective tax for, um, for the Commission's own resources. And I think that will be a big diplomatic no-no because in a way it flies in the face of common but differentiated responsi responsibilities, which is essentially saying that industrialized nations have a special responsibility and therefore do need to support developing country partners in their transition and to not only tax them for a transition that they are not able to currently do to the same extent that the EU is, but to then not even reinvest that revenue into support for third countries, I think that's going to be a big flashpoint potentially. We've already seen countries like China, like India, um, essentially the entire basics group um, refer to this as a unilateral statement, uh, a unilateral move. Um, so I do think that we might be facing contestation within the WTO um, ahead of COP, which would obviously not be the political dynamics that you would want to see heading into this major cooperative moment. Um, now, a lot of this is speculation. We will need to see the final package. It will completely depend on how the EU talks with allies. But maybe the final point that I will make is depending on the design, I don't think this affects who we think it affects. What we keep hearing is, oh, this will make China do more or, oh, this will make South Africa do more. It's gonna affect the European neighborhood, primarily depending on what it, what is it, what it is imposed on. Um, and if it's electricity, that's the EU neighborhood. So it's really the countries that we have a vested interest in helping in their transition. Um, but it's not necessarily a political will issue always. It's usually a combination of political will and financial will. And I'm not entirely sure how a CBAM will change that. It will just make it more expensive for them. Um, I'd be keen to hear what other panelists think. Thank you, Jennifer. Uh, maybe Jitta Goodland, you can share a few of your thoughts uh, there. Uh, do you have hopes of some kind of breakthrough regarding uh, global carbon mar markets and Article 6 at COP26? Uh, and do you think this um, proposal for a carbon border adjustment mechanism will actually help or hinder those negotiations? I believe it will help. I believe it will push the discussion um, already now. I mean, there are many countries who are very interested, maybe feel some skepticism. Uh, I don't agree that it's a diplomatic uh, um, chaos or a problem in that direction. But of course, uh, many countries in the world wonder who has uh, export to the U European Union wonders what will happen. But I think that is actually a good thing. That is a push for, uh, for transition. But if I could wish for just one thing and could be the one who decides <laughs> what would be the outcome of, of Glasgow, then I would say let's have a carbon tax uh, all over wor the world. That would be the absolutely best solution. Uh, but I know that that is... Um, 
that is a wish that, it, yeah, it's a wish from me. It, it will not happen this COP at least, uh, but we can push for it. But in 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 main, what meanwhile, uh, this would be the absolutely best uh, tool uh, to make sure that we transist faster, that it's reliable, predictable, and uh, that we phase out uh, the the fossil fuels and and the coal from our economy. But that said. Um, in, meanwhile, we need different uh, mechanisms, different other tools that can help us transist and that can be more possible to get agreements on. And then I believe that uh, the ETS system was one of these mechanisms that did function in the European Union when tax didn't fly. Why not try to implement that and help those who are already on their way? to do that and have discussions how we can align ourselves together. So it's more predictable. So we, we help out globally and all these countries who already started that discussion. So they don't have such a long uh, improvement period like we had with ETS. So they go immediately to a more efficient system. And then uh, on the carbon, um, border uh, uh, mechanism. I really believe we need the CBAM to, uh, to be uh, a push in that direction. So we also fare in the imported goods for the European Union, but that will also drive other countries to set up their own ETS or similar systems. So I cannot be negative. I need this to be Instead of the carbon tax that would be the, the A plan, we need this B plan with different tools. And those who don't like it maybe need to, to show me and others what we can do instead. Okay, thanks the for C that. Um, Amber Rudd, uh, maybe your views uh, and, and hopes maybe about some uh, breakthrough on uh, Article 6 and global carbon markets. Uh, at the COP26. Do you think the CBAM discussion will actually help drive those uh, talks forward and uh, maybe lead us to some kind of agreement in Glasgow? Um, can I first say, uh, Frederick, how much I agree with just what Jita said. I agree we need the whole alphabet if we can't get to the A choice. Um, you know, the, the phrase is we mustn't make um, the perfect the enemy of the good. If we can't have a carbon um, tax immediately, which of course we can't for all the political reasons we know about, it's right for different countries to try out different things to try to get some way of putting a price on the pollution. I found that in the UK, some of the opposition I would get from members of parliament as well as from the public when I was making these cases is why bother to do this when we import so much carbon in goods from China? And it's true, the UK does. And I heard a UK minister for the first time talking about it positively as a prospect when the environment minister was talking about the Australian trade deal and was talking then for about sort of justifying it, putting a level playing field with UK farmers and talked about a carbon border adjustment mechanism. I think he surprised his cabinet colleagues when he did that. But the fact is, it is now common discussion amongst people. Um, I understand that Biden has said to the European Union that it's not for now. Uh, for him anyway, and I think that it would be too far for the US for now, um, for all the reasons we know about politically for holding his consensus together. Um, but for in terms of progress, I think the more we can see of other countries trying to do an ETS, 
of the EU, seeing that the ETS price on carbon rising, which we've seen recently, very good news. I think that we will definitely see discussions around it. And we shouldn't be despondent about the fact that they won't lead to an immediate resolution. It is remarkable that government uh, prime ministers, presidents, leaders are now discussing it, even though they're not going to implement it at the moment. It feels like it's now a legitimate part of the agenda, which again is a reflection on how far we've come in the past five to six years, because they can all see that if we can only do that, put a price on the pollution that is so damaging to the climate, it will lead to a better outcome for us all. The trouble is bringing everybody with us. Again, I'm afraid another political phrase I am very uh, keen on is politicians know what to do. They just don't know how to get elected after they've done it. We have to move in pace with the public as well as leading them. Thank you, Amber Rudd. Uh, Nisha, Shafi, maybe a few thoughts uh, from your side about uh, the potential of carbon border adjustment mechanisms to drive the conversation forward at COP26 and maybe resolve those long-standing issues like Article 6, uh, which have been pending for so many years. Uh, do you think that uh, will help the conversation or, or on the contrary, uh, lead some countries to um, to adopt more defensive positions. Uh, thank you, Frederick. I echo what our fellow panelists have been saying. Uh, it wouldn't be a, um, uh, a key issue, but it is being quite discussed actively, uh, and it is more like a political ambitions required there. Given the fact, um, you know, um, uh, you know, climate ambitions through market mechanism has been quite discussed and has to be agreed upon. And I believe COP26 could be a great a place to have that discussion at the point of time and also having at the same time uh, the mechanism how that can be introduced. Uh, that's not only how to operationalize Article 6 of uh, CDM at the same time, but also at the same time there are existing carbon mechanisms which has been quite proven uh, at this point of time. I think the Japan's uh, joint credit market mechanism was... Uh, uh, a point that was discussed, I was in one of the discussions during uh, COP25 in Madrid, uh, that some existing examples can be seen as a, a good way moving forward how carbon mechanism can be you know, um, uh, understood in the right way and how we can uh, politically push that within the countries to make sure this is one of the key issues that can be discussed in the coming COP. Uh, thanks, Nishid. Uh, let me stay with you maybe for um, uh, another question on, on a different topic, which is about the comparability and the credibility, in fact, of the pledges uh, that are being made by the European Union, the US and, and China. We're talking about sometimes uh, zero carbon or net zero emissions. Um, in the European Union, uh, the, uh, uh, the net uh, zero objective has faced some kind of criticism because it includes carbon removals uh, from forestry. This is going to be one key topic of discussion as well at the international level. Uh, we're thinking about the Amazon and uh, places as well in, in Africa and in Asia where deforestation is happening. Uh, do you uh, think uh, this, this discussion about carbon removals will be one of the keys to COP26? Well, it, it should be, and uh, it will be, I'm sure, given the fact how, how much uh, uh, you know, forest-based things have been quite discussed. I mean, Amazon has been uh, more, more than um, uh, just a forest. It's more like an emotional thing when it comes to uh, uh, mitigating uh, uh, the carbon dioxide. And at the same time, um, 
it is important that the ambitions made by the European Union and the U.S. are quite promising. And uh, at the same time, most of the countries here in the MENA region, for example, UAE has came up with a very promising uh, uh, NDCs recently. Uh, at the same time, Morocco and Lebanon also did like very comprehensive NDCs. Given the fact we would see how they're going to deliver would be key. Yes, of course, this ambition comes with a great push from the European partners and also U.S., but what we have to live through is how they're going to achieve this with the given target. But some of them are seen as far-sighted um, um, ambition, given the fact that the climate emergency we are into, um, it is seen uh, too far, uh, too little. Uh, and we, we hope uh, this ambitions can be materialized sooner than it is agreed. And the ambitions and the policies set by the government would definitely help uh, the private sectors to come up with uh, uh, you know, more uh, and um, uh, fast or swift change in the industries what they are at this point of time. So I'm optimistic by the ambition, but I think uh, they are far, but um, I am sure they would be achieving in the whatever target time. But um, we need not forget the climate emergency and we need to have those ambitions uh, reached at the earliest possible time. Thank you. Uh, Jennifer Tolman, maybe um, a, a few thoughts from your end about the, uh, the carbon removal discussion uh, and the net target that was adopted uh, at the European level. Um, what do you think uh, will be the importance of that discussion around net targets at COP26? a really critical discussion um, because at the end of the day it's about credibility and it's also about integrity and I think those are the two things that aren't just going to be discussed at this COP they're going to be discussed at the COP for the next 10 years it's great that we're seeing countries and businesses and just broadly actors stepping up to net zero targets um, especially when those are underpinned by concrete policies by 2030 targets in the case of governments that have have credible development pathways behind them ideally with a carbon budget and that's really the credibility question but there is also going to need to be a recognition at some point that there's only so much net to go around and not all of that is going to be covered by innovative new technologies that are unproven at the end of the day or certainly unproven at scale so i think at a certain point there is going to have to be a conversation around who just has to go zero real zero and who gets that net and to a certain extent there is a lot of impetus behind reserving large parts of that net for for industries particularly heavy industry where we yet to have where we've yet to identify a proper transition technology where we've, where we've yet to identify a fully renewable approach. So I think net zero is going to be absolutely key. Carbon removals are going to be absolutely key, but not everybody gets carbon removals. And I think that's not a conversation that we've had right now. So they are not an excuse not to invest in significant offshore and onshore wind, significant solar, renewable energy systems, energy efficiency. Energy efficiency is the great unsung hero here that nobody seems to want to invest in despite the amazing returns that it makes because everybody is quite keen on the shiny new thing that is climate technology innovation and emissions removals. They will be really crucial, but there won't be as many of them as we think. Thank you. Uh, Jitta Gutland, um, you're uh, an MEP from Sweden, and Sweden has been a little bit in the spotlight um, uh, over the past months uh, regarding its management of, of forests. Uh, and, and push for, for, for biomass and, and forestry uh, as part of the, uh, uh, the carbon removals. 
uh, in the uh, EU uh, target. So uh, what do you think uh, will be the importance of the discussion on carbon removals at COP26? And is the EU giving a, a good example there? Yes, I'm, I was thinking um, after Jennifer's intervention, which was uh, very important, and I agree uh, that I would like to have the heart of, uh, of the European Union first, then I might say very short on Sweden too, uh, so put that hat on. But as the rapporteur for the climate law in the European Parliament, uh, for, for us in the European Parliament, it was important to send a message to the Council that we we didn't see it as uh, responsible to put too much effort on the carbon sink until 2030 because we need reduction so if we are undermining the reduction part in the target for 2030 then we might not go as fast as we need with the reductions in different sectors uh, and let's face it in the end there is imp important to have the the net because we cannot get rid or, or we will have more difficulty to get rid of uh, some of our emissions later on. Uh, but now we actually still have some lower hanging fruits. So let's keep up the, the speed the, uh, until 2030. So we don't fool ourselves and do uh, less than we can uh, in the reduction part. Um, it was easy for the councils to say, but let's focus more on, on the, the coal sink because that becomes a bit more blurry, maybe, <laughs> who is doing it. Uh, and it, it doesn't seem like such a big effort. And now I might put on my Swedish hat, uh, of course, for, for countries like Sweden, um, who has lots of forest, it becomes a bit like oh, we are the one who's supposed to be that coal sink, while those without the forest are not supposed to take that responsibility. So, of course, there is a Swedish angle here. Um, for me, it's important to have the balance, both, as I mentioned, between reduction and the, and the coal sink, but also uh, I believe there is a balance when it comes to the forest uh, policy uh, we need to be very strong on deforestation. We need to be very strong uh, as the European Union on our consumption uh, when it comes to Amazonas and uh, the deforestation that is happening there. It's so important and also in our own union, of course, and we need to protect the biodiversity. Uh, but on the other angle, forest can also contribute to uh, tools that we need to replace fossil fuel alternatives, such as plastic in renovations, such as uh, fossil fuels, such as many products that uh, would be much more costly for the environment if we use other alternative than wood. So we, we can actually, with a sustainable forest management, use uh, also the tools from the forest to transist. And that is a message that the European Union doesn't always have, and maybe that's my Swedish hat. Thank you, Jitta. Uh, Jana Lesiak, uh, let me uh, turn to you for a second now, because when it comes to forestry and carbon removals, uh, often the big discussion is how to measure that. Uh, we have satellites now to uh, help us measure the state of forests and um, 
things like methane as well. Uh, do you uh, believe we're getting closer to some kind of international agreement about how to account for forests uh, at COP26? Um, and so we can make um, a, a robust uh, and reliable system to account for carbon removals uh, going forward. And do you expect something will happen around that at COP26? Um, Frederick, yes. Well, I'm not part of the LULUCF um, uh, experts group, so I can hardly, uh, hardly say how much uh, has been done, but definitely there are um, high expectations that the um, the measurements um, and the uh, the frameworks for um, uh, for uh, LULUCF um, will be um, at the table at, at Glasgow, and definitely we, um, as a Slovenian pres presidency, with um, sixty percent of um, uh, our countries. Um, uh, covered with uh, with forest, we definitely uh, put lots of energy and um, expertise into um, into this area. Um, but if I may, um, let me let me get back uh, also to the um, to the question of um, uh, of mitigation, which was discussed previously. Um, for me, it is quite um, difficult to. Um, think about mitigation without adaptation at the same time, and I believe that in this area, Glasgow is really is really going to be uh, quite different. Um, as we uh, as we know, um, the adaptation um, um, we at the moment we are facing with uh, extreme needs um, of developing countries um, for. Uh, uh, to adapt to different circumstances uh, than they were even five or six years ago. So the um, the main question probably is not going to be so much about the numbers of reducing um, uh, uh, emissions as to how to adapt to different uh, um, to um, different uh, climate circumstances. So in that sense, um, some parties argue that uh, Glasgow is going to be about um, primary about adaptation. Thank you. Uh, Amber Rudd, maybe uh, a, a few thoughts from you around this question of forests and carbon removals and adaptation as well, because uh, quite often the two are linked, in fact. Yes, and it brings us straight into the politics, which um, we've only sort of lightly touched on in this debate. Uh, the politics of the rainforest in Brazil, where Bolsonaro is just, you know, torching the rainforest, and it's uh, some of the highest levels we've seen in the past ten years. Um, and of he's, of course, he's in dispute about whether he should be getting more money in order to sort of protect them. But who knows well, who will be president next year? So. Forests are very, very important, and we talked, uh, talked earlier about um, carbon sinks and making sure that we protect sources of trying to take carbon out of the atmosphere, direct air capture, mangroves, etc. And all these are possible, and at the moment they're very expensive, but they will be coming into main use, it's clear, in the next 10 to 20 years. So we need to continue to encourage them. But the politics of 
the protecting the rainforests and other areas like in Indonesia and Malaysia are all go, always going to be hugely challenging, which is why it's so important to have these big lead, uh, meetings like the G7 and like COP26, which act as a forcing mechanism for people to reach an agreement. Thank you, Amber Rode. Uh, maybe uh, a few more words now about, about Brazil, because, I mean, you did mention um, likely resistance that um, uh, the world community is going to uh, face from uh, Mr. Bolsonaro. So uh, do you believe uh, there's something there that needs to be uh, some kind of carrot for, for Brazil uh, that uh, should be offered uh, at COP26? Um, no, I mean, I... I'm not close enough to really be aware, but my instinct is that I would not be doing that because I should think Bolsonaro would just use any money he got for his election campaign. So I'd be very cautious about that. Anthony Frogat, uh, maybe a few uh, views from your side when it comes to forestry, carbon removals uh, and adaptation. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of carbon removals, I mean, I think that the points that Jennifer made were really worth emphasising in terms of we need to be able to rely on uh, plans for, for mitigation that are based on technologies that we know that can deliver. And that's about the credibility. So anything that we are putting forward for any plan that's being put, put forward by countries for 2030 needs to be in line with the, the net zero plans. Uh, we can't be pushing everything off uh, and saying, well, sometime in 2030, 40, we will be putting in place technologies that remove carbon from the atmosphere because we don't know if this is going to work at scale. Uh, we don't know how much it's going to cost. And I think there is really interesting developments. Again, if, if we look back to the start of the, this whole session, where are we now or what's different from Paris? Um, a lot of the mitigation plans at the time of Paris were involving carbon capture and storage on coal or on gas as being the way to decarbonize the electricity system. And I think that is much less the case. If, if you look at the current plans, uh, IEA, EUs, et cetera, it is the backbone of this is now renewable technology. So we've seen a shift. Uh, and so I, I think that's really important because we're seeing the technologies that can deliver that are falling prices uh, and more and more reliance on those. So we need to do that across different sectors. Obviously, electricity is the first, but as we electrify heat and transport, um, that will also be possible. There are clearly some sectors that is going to be more difficult, heavy industry, agriculture, et cetera, where we will have to have a range of different options, some of which may be uh, yeah, biofuel based, uh, but we mustn't rely on them. And we must have a plan B in case these technologies, the, uh, the uh, atmospheric removal technologies aren't able to deliver at the scale that we need. So for me, that's the absolutely fundamental. On, on the question of the adaptation, I agree. It is uh mitigation i mean in, in some ways this conversation uh is an indication of that mitigation dominates uh many of the climate discussions uh but we know that climate change is happening we know that it is impacting on people we know that it is having an economic uh implications for individuals industries uh countries and we need to prepare for that so we need to have more resilience uh, we need to be sharing experiences and uh one of the the, the key deliverables i i guess for glasgow is that countries are coming forward with much more detailed adaptation plans that can be discussed and international assistance can be put forward to help uh, develop those plans. 
Thank you, Anthony. Um, I think we're getting closer now to the end uh, of this event, but before we close, uh, I will ask each one of you uh, to maybe uh, share a few of your concluding thoughts, maybe raise a few points that haven't been uh, made uh, yet, uh, possibly. And so uh, let me start with you, Jitta Gutland. Thank you very much, Frederick, and thank you for uh, this um, uh, opportunity for me to participate in this uh, debate and I um, or discussion. I really believe it was so valuable to listen to to experts uh, in front of uh, Glasgow. Uh, I would like to summarize by uh, we. I have great expectations. We need to have great expectations. It can be a very successful uh, COP this time. We have different um, uh, opportunities. The stars are in, in are right again, like in Paris. So let's use that. Uh, I hope that it will not only sort out the technical discussion needed, but also be a political outcome. And in that that. Um, political outcome. Of course, as I mentioned, I would like to see a carbon tax, but I know that that is um, a vision that I, I need to fight more for and all of us. So in, in replacement of that, we need different fruitful discussion that is political on how, what we can do instead. Yes, the, the BCD plan. And uh, in, in that case, I would like to see both, of course, a bigger um, uh, promises when it comes to the NDCs from the countries. I would like to see more effort on sectorial legislation to make them fit in together. The main thing for me is the ETS, to connect them in different countries, to make sure that we have fruitful bilateral discussions after COP also on how we implement and help each other. I see CBAM as a tool that can help out here and push for that change. I like to see also that we have a good finance, uh, climate financing uh, program and that uh, the European Union is really... Uh, helping out there. I like the G7 to be the driver of this. I see the United States as a partner this time. And then, of course, uh, to, to really make the multilateral effort together and make sure that we all say that this is a start of a new implementing phase of the Paris Agreement. Thank you. Thanks, Chita Gutland. Let me turn to Jana Lesiak now for some uh, concluding thoughts from your side. Um, thank you. From my side, maybe um, to point out that I'm really happy to be um, part of um, EU negotiation um, team. Um, uh, um, Glasgow is definitely go going to be um, a turning point. Um, I believe that EU has made its uh, commitments and goals very um, transparent. Uh, we have uh, European climate law, we have Fit, uh, Fit for 55 package. Uh, but um, I would say we need to focus also on the gaps uh, that, needs, that needs to be filled, namely the finance gap uh, for least developed um, and the countries that uh, need uh, need. Uh, um, our assistance the most. Um, additionally, additionally, I would say that also maybe sometimes we need to be extremely visionary um, uh, as negotiators, um, uh, in, which includes that the, um, the vision of how we should 
together transform um, our society, uh, all our societies into zero carbon mode, meaning that we need to really redefine um, in the future um, our notions of uh, prosperity, our notions of progress, what does it mean to progress um, in a global world? Um, also, our, our notion of competitiveness, which is uh, becoming um, only a win-win um, solution uh, and not uh, to be competitive um, against each other. Uh, also, we need to refine what does it mean to be uh, fina financially um, reliable. Um, of course, um, uh, let me not get into our um, redefinition of governance uh, in a global level and also, of course, leadership. Um, I believe that that uh, Glasgow is going to be also about good leadership, which is, um, as I said, um, which counts in um, all all the part all the parties involved. Uh, it's in inclusive, a new kind of leadership uh, in a sense. We've seen that Copenhagen, for example, was. Um, um, uh, was not uh, 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 a good uh, example of leadership, and I, I believe that we learned a lot um, from past mistakes. Thanks. Thank you, Jana. Uh, let me turn to Nisha Chafi now for some brief concluding thoughts, if possible. Uh, thank you, Frederick. Well, uh, my closing remarks would be that uh, we, we, we have a political uh, mileage right now uh, moving to COP26. Uh, I hope um, our leaders um, uh, come up with the uh, leadership quality, to be frank, uh, given the fact uh, the pandemic has shown how vulnerable we are altogether. And this is a quite an extraordinary situation where they can show that uh, global solidarity and the trust that has been uh, has to be maintained and build up on that. Uh, so I believe um, moving towards COP26, making sure uh, all the stakeholders, vulnerable countries uh, are heard, even civil society and youth uh, uh, youth communities have been heard, and making sure it is um, it's a it's a plain session for everybody to share the concern and take forward uh, an ambition. And I hope you know I'm a very optimistic person. Uh, I hope in the coming two three years we we abide by a, a global agreement, and I hope in 2050 or 60. Uh, we don't have a cop. <laughs> uh, I'm being optimistic in that, that we, we definitely have to work on because uh, it has always been uh, jumping from cop to cops, but delivering the climate emergency has been quite the sideline. So I hope uh, COP26 uh, delivers what is promised and also to see our leaders uh, uh, stay up to their promises. Thank you. And Amber Rudd, some concluding thoughts now from your end. Never forget why we are trying to do this. We look around us in the world and we see uh, great misery, uh, worse droughts, storms, consequences of land change, miserable communities, immigration turning up in Europe and in the UK, uh, huge problems as a result of this, which is the urgency that we need to do it. As though COP itself isn't complicated enough, we now also have to have the back of the pandemic to try to engage with in order to get an agreement. But the urgency, the necessity, the visibility, I think is reasons for me to be optimistic that a result will be good for us. Thank you. And Anthony Frogat, a few words from your side now. Yeah, thank you. I keep dropping off for some reason. Um, just uh, 
adding on, I think, to what Amber said, I just caught the end of it. Um, I, I do think the big challenge is going to be uh, the inclusiveness of COP26. Um, we don't quite yet know what format it's going to take, how much of it will be in person, how much will be virtual. But an extra mile needs to be done in order to demonstrate that this is inclusive, that all voices are heard. And that's not just from all of the different countries, but all of the different stakeholders. So in terms of the the, the civil society, the businesses, et cetera, all need to be part of this process. And I think that is the real challenge that we face. Um, so much as these events are, are excellent in terms of online, they do, uh, there is a, a lacking in terms of the opportunities to have quieter conversations to deepen understanding. And I think we, we do need to work out how, how best that can be achieved uh, in Glasgow. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, Jennifer Tolman, you have the privilege of closing uh, this event. Thank you very much. Um, I fully endorse what Anthony has just said. I think access is going to be key. I also think we've clearly seen a consensus among panelists that it is urgent, and that means that COP26 does need to be a political moment. But a political outcome at COP26 also needs to deliver on adaptation and finance, not just mitigation. Um, the really key piece here is we're going to need to have the US and China on board to actually be able to deliver this sort of a political outcome, but they're what make it feasible, they're not what who make it good. I think to have an outcome that is actually good and accelerating and credible and also delivers for those most vulnerable requires the EU to also take a sense of ownership and a sense of leadership in rebuilding those high ambition coalitions with vulnerable partners, because that combination of vulnerable countries, EU as, a, as an actor that is championing integrity and credibility is what would make any political outcome enabled by China and the US good. Um, this is not the end of the road, COP26. This is the accelerating point, or at least it needs to be if we're actually going to make this next decade count. Thank you. Uh, so I think this wraps up uh, today's event. Uh, thanks again to Equinor for supporting it. Uh, thanks to our panellists, of course, for attending uh, today's webinar and to our viewers for following it. Um, if you missed the beginning of this debate, well, you can watch it all again uh, on YouTube. It will be soon posted online. And if you want to know more about upcoming events uh, on your active, just visit our website, events. .youractive.com. Um, I hope to see you again soon. In the meantime, take care and stay safe. Bye-bye.